Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 461 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And uh, very excited to have Katie Cole back on the podcast. We cover a bunch of stuff. I mean, this is a very timely episode in light of the great resignation and trying to position not just leaders, but women leaders on your team. And uh, she has so many insights, so I think you're going to love it. Today's episode is brought to you by MediShare. They have a 98% customer satisfaction rating and an average member savings of 50% or more. Find out how much you could save by going to metashare.com slash carry and by World Vision. Download your free leadership guide assessment today at worldvision.org slash carry podcast. So in this episode, we are going to cover whether the gender pay gap actually exists. There's debate on that. I love what Katie has to say. The challenges of hybrid offices and also finding your leadership voice. Katie has spent the last 25 years serving in local church ministry as an executive director of one of America's largest and fastest growing multi-site churches. She has been a director at Leadership Network, a founding member of the Women's Executive Pastor Network, and has authored the best-selling book, Developing Female Leaders. Her newest book, which we talk about toward the end of this podcast, is Finding Your Leadership Voice in 90 Days. So, so glad to have Katie back. And uh, hey, for those of you who are regular listeners, do you detect a difference in this episode? I'll wait. If you really listen, like with headphones in a completely still room, you may be able to hear the ocean. I'm in what what I'm joking about are my California studios. I don't really have California studios, but uh, I have relocated to California for the better part of a month uh, due to a couple of commitments, some of which involve the podcast. And we have this amazing place on the ocean So, uh, hey, for those of you who are getting into podcasting and we hear from you all the time, just so you know, normally I record this on a Shure SMB7. Anybody in the broadcast industry can tell you or recording industry what a great mic that is. I'm actually recording this podcast on an Audio-Technica. Let me see. I'm picking up the mic as we speak. ATR2100. To the best of my knowledge, yes, and that was me just putting it back down on a glass desktop, Um, it's a $79 microphone. So can you hear the difference? Mm, I don't know. I talk to podcasters all the time who are like, you know what? I spent like $5,000 on gear and I'm like, "Mm, I I don't think I even spent $1,000 on gear, maybe $500 on gear, laptop notwithstanding or computer notwithstanding, uh, before I hit a million downloads. And uh, I still don't think I have a ton of gear. So uh, definitely you want good audio quality. But for those of you who are worried about the financial cost of podcasting, uh, it's pretty simple. I just have that simple mic, which plugs into any laptop. And uh, I've got a little cheap webcam. Um, Well, it's not that cheap, but it's not super expensive either. I think it was $400. So, you know, there you go for under 500 bucks. Boom, you're in and uh, (laughs) away you go. So that's a little excursus for those of you who are thinking about getting into podcasting or think it's all about the gear. Yeah, you got to have good gear, but that's not everything. Anyway, it is that time of year again, open enrollment season, and it's the dreaded yearly task of diving into a mountain of paperwork and research, trying to find the best healthcare option for you and your family. We all want two things when it comes to our healthcare, trust and affordability. With a 98% 
customer satisfaction rating, and an average member savings of 50% or more. MediShare is two for two on those. It's an affordable alternative to health insurance, and they have access to over 900,000 healthcare providers. And one of the things I love is they offer free and unlimited professional virtual counseling sessions to their members. And just about everybody needs that right now. Find out how much you can save by going to metashare.com slash carry. That's metashare.com slash carry. And can you remember a more difficult time to be a leader? I don't think so. And it seems that every day brings new and more complicated challenges in all sectors of life, including the church. And I would weigh in to say, 2022 probably isn't going to be that different. There'll be new challenges, but there will be challenges. Well, World Vision knows that you need support, and that's what they're here for. So they have partnered with Krish Kandaya to create an interactive tool to help you assess the critical questions and take stock of where you are and how you are. I've taken the assessment, seen it. It's tremendously helpful. And if you want some free help, you can download your free leadership assessment guide today at worldvision.org slash podcast. That's worldvision.org slash C-A-R-E-Y podcast, and they'll get that in your hands for free. So really excited to bring you today my conversation with Katie Cole. Katie, welcome back. It's good to have you. Thank you, Carrie, so much for having me back. It's great to be with you and your listeners. I'm excited to jump into our conversation. Well, so last time we talked about women in leadership, it was a great interview. I would encourage people to go back and listen to round one with you, but I want to pick up. There's a strong argument that women did not fare as well as men during the pandemic. I've read that in everything from, you know, the Wall Street Journal to Bloomberg to other uh, business publications. I'd love your thoughts on that and feel free to disagree and say, no, actually, that's not the story at all. Like, what did what did you see with the women leaders that you are coaching and in contact with during the last two years? Well, I definitely think the the pandemic has been hard for everyone, for men and women. So even though maybe the research is pointing to things being a little tougher on the girls, I don't want to take away from the fact that it's been hard for everyone. Um, I think I look at that research a little different than maybe strict gender bifurcation, because I really think it has to do with what most women's circumstances of their life involve that can be really different from men. So if, for example, we have an empty nest woman who's been in her job for 20 years and she, you know, they don't have a lot of bills and they're paying off their house and they're feeling great. She probably did awesome in the pandemic and enjoyed the extra time to work out and planted an organic garden and has lots of wonderful things. Or if you have a dad who's a widow who has three little kids, he probably struggled just like many of these reports around women did. So I think that's important to keep in mind. It's not about women women and men's resiliency or ability to d- adapt. It's really about the things we see in, in more women's lives than we see in men. Things like caring for children. I think the pandemic was even harder than just working from home because they took on so much of the educational side of their kids. Uh, we see that big steep climb in mental health around teenagers. That has really affected moms and their ability to work well. Aging parents, many folks had to bring their parents in to live with them. Uh, We have what's known as the burden of emotional labor that women tend to carry more of both in the office and at home. And so when we have an office team that is struggling emotionally or mental health or their Ah, own work-life balance, women tend to be more sensitive to that, carry that load on behalf of their team more than the guys do. So we did see a lot of statistics come out from women surveyed and men that it did hit them harder. About a third of women today, even now, are saying they are still struggling with long-term burnout symptoms. Um, I speak to a lot of people coaching, as I'm sure you do. 
a lot of men are saying they're so glad to have kind of life back to normal. I meet very <sighs> few women who feel like that. <laughs> so it's um, that kind of role overload that women tend to face just got magnified uh, during the pandemic, and they're still living with a lot of it. Okay, that's an interesting comment. Like life back to normal, men seem to be relieved and you're like, women are like, hey, it wasn't good before. Is that where that comment <laughs> is coming from? Help me understand. Uh, yeah, I think that. I think the long-term educational benefits of our kids are going to have long-lasting issues. Mm. So even though kids yeah. are back in school, there's a high percentage of kids who didn't really complete their last grade level. Um, again, if you have teenagers, mental health has been on a steep climb among teenagers. Um, and so there's more weight at home because of the cost of the pandemic on our kids. And moms are carrying the brunt of that. Again, not the not all of it. And I would say a lot of the research is pointing to husbands and dads stepping up more than ever before, but women have had to do about three or four steps um, to really kind of keep things balancing. And they're feeling that. I know you work mostly with, um, you know, women who work in offices or, you know, sort of that kind of knowledge worker field. Mm -hmm. But one of the realities of the pandemic, and I wonder if some of the research points to this, is that certain sectors have been hit really hard. The service sector has been really hit hard. Lower wage jobs have been hit hard. Um, have you picked up any um, you know, impact on women in those sectors? Do you think those sectors have been hit harder and as a result, women have been? I'm just curious as to what you read is. Absolutely, especially early on in the pandemic, those frontline essential workers, yeah. the majority well, of them healthcare. are women. Yeah, duh. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the majority right. of them are women. And again, those are sort of the first ones hit, the last ones to recover. So that has mm. a huge impact on women. And I think especially, you know, both healthcare and education are female-dominated uh, professions. So a lot of their, the majority of their workforce are going to be women. So some of the statistics come from that. Most of the ones that um, I'm looking at are more leadership-based roles. Uh, where we're looking at double and triple shifts. So I work all day at, at an office, I come home. Um, but all of that matters. And um, all mm. of those frontline workers are our future female executives. So we all start out in those places. I think the difference for men and women is women tend to not get promoted out of those jobs. They carry them for the majority of their life for many women. And so that uh, does add a lot more stress. When you're 50 or 60, and get downsized from your frontline job where you're already making less than most people, it's a much bigger impact. Yeah. And let's talk about making less than most people too. So there has been an active debate in a lot of the literature about whether there even is a gender pay gap at this point. Some people are saying, well, you know, women are basically paid the same as men. However, if they take time off for, you know, having children and that kind of thing, that's where the discrepancy is. I would love your take, Katie, on whether you see a gender pay gap, and if so, what that looks like. Well, I work a lot with churches. There is definitely a gender gap in churches around equal pay for equal work. Uh, but I do think that uh, definitely is true in the marketplace. All the, re all the research points to exactly what you're saying. For the most part, if you look at men and women holistically, there is about um, a 15 to 18% difference in wages overall. But even as we research women as they grow higher in levels, um, especially in the more executive suite, we do see that percentage come down significantly to sometimes five, mm. three, maybe even 2%. The challenge that I want to remind people, though, is even a 2% discrepancy at that salary level over a 20-year career is a lot of money. Mm. 
And so mm. uh, it, it, there really isn't a um, way to kind of like sort of brush that to the side as it doesn't really matter anymore. Um, part of it is how we look at work and how we value work and making sure that we're paying people for equal work, you know, equal pay for equal work. The other piece that's important in the gender gap is what we call the broken rung, which is the number of women who actually get promoted into management and therefore are put into developmental roles that can move them right. up in the pay scale. So the broken rung refers to that very first manager role that tends to be uh, promoted to men far greater than women. And so then over the course of a woman's life, even if she does take time off for kids, or if a dad does, uh, there's men are still going to earn more. They have more progression in their leadership. They get more uh, uh, responsibility and therefore more compensation, more opportunities. And so, again, over the course of a career, that really adds up and makes a big difference. Even if it took you five years longer as a woman to get into management, that five years stays with you your whole career. You dropped a huge bomb there and kind of moved on quickly. But yeah, I work a lot in the church world. In the church world, there definitely is a gender <laughs> pay gap. I'd like to go back to that, Katie. Um, you know, it bothers me. My wife's a pharmacist and a lawyer. So I've always kind of come at this with a bias that there is, should be no gap. That's been my view a long time. And obviously different positions pay at different levels, right? Like that happens, male or female. But the the differentiator in my books has never been what gender you are. Why do you think churches persist in having a, a gender pay gap? Because I wouldn't disagree with you. I've seen that as well. What do you think the issue mm -hmm. is there? I believe this is a lot of our leftover sort of enculturation around gender roles. Uh, even in uh more progressive or egalitarian churches, we still tend to have a bit of a bias around uh, women as homemakers or uh, having children. And so when we bring them into leadership, it's a, at a little different pace. Um, but mm. definitely in more conservative realms, we see this as a greater issue, uh, largely because we tend to give women similar jobs, but we uh, give them much less authoritative titles. So uh, the role of pastor mm. is usually reserved for men. And then with that past pastor title comes being licensed for ministry, which in America has significant tax breaks. Um, it mm. tends to come with higher levels of insurance or retirement, uh, more vacation time, more authority. Uh, people network with you differently from the church. And so that gap is not just in pay because I'm a director instead of a pastor, but all the fringe benefits that come with that role or in the community of church also is pretty significantly different. Boy, you covered an awful lot in just a minute or two, but it becomes more clear. Uh, let me ask you a, a slight variation of the question. So let's say you have two, you were an executive pastor, right, at your church. So let's say in a more egalitarian framework, do you still see like male executive pastors making more than female executive pastors? In other words, unequal pay for equal work and equal title, or has that largely gone now? No, I think so. that's still pretty significant. Um, it depends on the church. And honestly, it depends sure. on the area of the country and the culture um, around that and sort of left what I call leftover habits. So most senior and executive pastors that I work with and sort of raise awareness on this issue, when we pop the hood and kind of you know dig into the metrics of their HR systems, most of them are aghast at the pay discrepancy among their employees. They're not tracking them. They're not thinking about it. They're not they're not realizing someone has gone five years as a student ministry director and never gotten a raise, but 
you know, there's been a litany of 21 year old new seminary grads who have come through and been, you know, given promotions and moved forward. Um, they're just not comparing or thinking about those things. And so I think hmm. a lot of this is really un, uh, unnoticed. It, it, is not uh, had a light shine on it. Um, I know when I was hired, I was actually an executive director. Um, but when I was hired um, as a lower level uh, in my first job in ministry, uh, I was uh, the first female to take on a leadership role. Well, the HR clerk, who's part time woman in her fifties, just put me in the category that she puts all the other women, which is admin level benefits. Uh, and so she didn't know, and she wasn't she wasn't trying to be discriminatory against me. It's not that she didn't believe in me. That was just the system that we were a part of. Uh, 20 years ago. And it wasn't until I made my first hire of a man who was going to work for me as a coordinator that he got all these benefits I didn't have. He had insurance for his wife and kids. He had way more vacation. He and and he got licensed for ministry. And I was like, wait a second. I I mean, I'm not trying to be greedy, but it seems weird that I would supervise someone who's getting so much more than me. Like something's not right there. And so that was, uh, you know, that was the opportunity for my leaders to be like, we had no idea. And they were wonderful. They were apologetic. They really didn't have any idea. No one would have assumed that. But it just was mm. happen chance that a couple years into my job, I figured it out and and felt confident enough to speak up for myself in it. And a lot of women don't feel that. Well, on that note, uh, we're just 10, 15 minutes into this interview. We've definitely stirred the pot. I'm sure there are a number <laughs> of leaders who are listening right now going, hey, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. That's me. I just realized that I'm probably being paid 20, 30%, 5% less than male counterparts. How do you raise the issue in that kind of like, you know, at your workplace, if that is you without getting fired? I'm sure a lot of people are afraid they're going to get fired. They're going to get blacklisted. They're going to be, you know, they're, they're going to pay for it. So how do you raise that if you know that that's you? Well, I do think for women or anyone who feels like they're not being treated equitably in their workplace, but especially in a church, getting fired is a pretty um, serious sort of uh, consequence to this. Most people don't worry about that, but most women do worry about being uh, discredited or okay. being considered a pain or yeah. not invited into conversations, which almost feels worse than not having the pay. <laughs> and so uh, we shouldn't have to choose. I'll just say that. I don't believe we should have to choose between being respected and making sure we're being paid fairly. Um, but sometimes it's a matter of just on asking the honest question. And a lot of times these conversations can start in the HR. If your church is big enough to have an HR person, even part-time, to be able to just ask and say, hey, I just was made aware that women often earn less, and I'm sure it's just a systematic thing from whatever, but would you look for me and see if anyone else on the team who has my level of responsibility, and this is one of the key pieces, oversees the same size of ministry I do and has the same number right. of volunteers I have. Because in the church world, you can have the same sort of level of authority um, and be invited to the same meetings, but the guy with the new college ministry with 18 kids should not be being paid, in my opinion, the same amount as the person overseeing children's ministry at four campuses who has, you know, 600 volunteers. That is not equitable pay for equitable work. And so you're looking for the comparisons in the organization of what you're actually contributing and the value you bring. Um, mm. and, and then being able to have a really honest conversation with your leader about what is fair and how does that look or help me understand why my pay or benefits are in this category and not here. And what can I do to raise that? What is the 
am I missing something? Am I not? Uh, I often find when I coach women, when they ask for what they can do differently, if their boss says nothing, then you have a different conversation. (laughs) But if they Mm. have suggestions for you, then maybe you need to do some things different. Like maybe they've got you on a track to earn more money, or maybe they've got you on a pathway to promotion. We, We need to stay open and coachable. Just because you're paid less doesn't mean you're being discriminated or overlooked. It could mean that you're still growing. But asking the question and understanding why is the key towards moving forward together. The goal is to keep the church and our leaders together, not to create division. I'm sure that there are a number of male bosses who listen to this and would have the same reaction that your boss did when they kind of discovered, mm-hmm. oh, you don't get the benefits that the people who report to you, they would be aghast. They don't know. Or they just haven't looked under the hood enough. If their light bulb goes off and they realize, uh-oh, I think I better go find out this is me. One of the challenges sometimes becomes you only have so much budget and you have mm-hmm. so many staff. Um, you've got a board that you have to report to. So how do you, what would your advice be to leaders like that who, let's just assume, want to do the right thing, and now they realize there's all these constraints? Uh, What have been some best practices with that? Well, I would recommend the first thing is to remember that facts are your friends. So getting Mm. the facts of what's really going on, particularly on your paid staff team, is is only going to help you begin to move the conversation. And kind of a Mm. corollary to that is if you are leading the change, uh, women, for the most part, are going to be with you. If they have to fight for something and you can't move fast or they discover it and bring it to you and you've maybe wondered or known about it and did nothing, that's going to create a real uh, break in trust. Mm. But if you come to them and say, listen, I can't believe this. I just heard this amazing podcast and I had HR pull some numbers and I'm just telling you, I am so sorry. I don't know what I can do. We are coming out of a pandemic. Our attendance is down 50% like everybody else. I just want you to know that I see it and I see you and this matters deeply to me. And there are many things that you can offer in terms of benefits. We do this with people all the time that don't have anything to do with salary. So uh, if you are in an area that licensed people for ministry, just simply doing that, not even changing title or pay, Mm. gives that person actual tax benefits that feels like a raise, a pretty significant one. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. You probably have resources in the congregation that could help do some things in their home or provide childcare or do some things that could love on this person uh, until you're able to make things more equitable. You could offer more flexibility. You could offer more vacation time. That costs you nothing. You could give a title uh, that matches the the title that she should have been having this whole time. That kind of promotion and making it easier her, for her to walk into rooms and have the authority that you have already mm. given her and asked her to be responsible for. All of those things are incredible efforts that don't cost anything, uh, or at least very little, that can make a big difference. Man, so practical. Okay, so remote work. <laughs> that was kind of a novelty three years ago. Now it's uh, pretty normal for people. Again, lots of literature out there. You got tech companies saying, well, when you used to live in San Francisco, you were worth X number. But now that you've moved to Montana in the middle of nowhere, uh, we want to pay you less. Like this is really raised... Uh, questions about the value of remote work. And I run a distributed remote team. I have no problem with it. I think people are people. You pay them, and it doesn't matter what the cost of living is. You pay them what you think they should make as a just wage. Um, That's my take on it. What's your take on remote pay? Has that made it harder, easier for people? What are your thoughts? Well, I think 
Uh, remote work just in general, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, has always served high capacity female leaders well. So the ability mm. to juggle, the ability to be flexible, to kind of be able to squeeze in with a lot more agility all the priorities that they have. And we definitely saw that in the beginning of the pandemic. Even though it was harder, many women were thankful to give up the commute, you know, put on the yoga pants and make a lot of things happen in a day. It was uh, in some ways really wonderful for many of us. Uh, but as we've moved on, uh, what we've seen is that as uh, companies have opened up, I would say like a half, uh, a half open or maybe half virtual, we're seeing some real cost to that. And I think the future is probably going to have to um, is going to have most innovation in this hybrid space. Uh, part of what we're seeing for women, and this comes down to pay and promotional abilities, is many women are choosing to stay home more than men are choosing to stay home. So men are back in the office. They're back together. Well, that seems really great. Like a woman's going to be able to kind of stay on top of things and keep this lifestyle that really allows her to hit all of her responsibilities well. But when you have an office culture and you're not there you do miss out. You're not seen as much. You're not known as well. Your work is not necessarily attributed to you. Um, when you're, you know, one of the two or three people on the Zoom call and everyone else is sitting around the table and they have pre-talk and post-talk after the meeting, you're missing out on those things. There's mm. nuances that were missed. We're seeing a lot of early research come in about the development of young leaders who are not getting uh, as much sort of informal feedback or kind of picking up cues from leaders and sort of the in-between of meetings. Um, so I think long-term, this hybrid model is going to have a pretty uh, significant impact that we're going to need to look at carefully. And uh, when it comes to pay and promotion, I think women uh, are are need to be really highly aware of the choices they're making and the cost that it's going to be. And then those of us who are leading those kind of organizations, how can we do our best to make sure that isn't what's happening? Uh, as a trainer, I do a lot of online training, and I learned early on having some people live in a room with me and some people on Zoom was not the way to do it. So even if I'm mm. in a, a company and I'm doing leadership training and there are 10 people in the building and 20 people internationally, we're all on Zoom in our office. We've leveled the playing field so that the interaction is equitable. I think we need to make sure we're disciplining ourselves to making sure we're having equitable conversations and equitable interactions uh, as much as possible. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought, because that was my next question, was to go to, okay, well, what are some solutions to that? Again, I've got 100% virtual companies, so we're all on level playing fields, right? We're all on cameras. But what are that's a really good idea to say, no, everybody in their offices and everyone on Zoom. What are some other things that hybrid employers can do to level the playing field? I think one of them is to really look at what are the rhythms of connection that you do want. And this is important even for virtual companies to figure out at some point we probably should try to get everybody in a room, even if we're all meeting at a conference or we see, you know, it's in different groups throughout the year, but you at least get mm -hmm. to see people at some point. It really does build relationship and trust, not required, but it's helpful. I think leaders can do a great job if they start thinking through what are those rhythms we want? Do we want an annual retreat where we fly everybody in and we spend three or four days together and that kind of levels things out. 
Do we want a quarterly meeting? Do we want a weekly day where everyone's in the office one day a week? And so even if you moved to the far, far burbs or in another state, you could fly in, you know, every Tuesday, or maybe it's, there's a three-day work stretch once a month. And so it's worth the trip and everyone kind of, you know, rallies around that. I think that's part of what we need to make sure we're looking at. I also think we need to adjust our expectations as leaders. And I see this a lot in the church world because we uh, tend to be run by leaders who are used to a platform and an audience. And mm-hmm. a lot of our leadership bias tends to be around giving ourselves that space because we're used to it. We like um, not just applause. I don't think it's an ego boost. I just think it's what we've relied on. And it usually aligns with our gifts. I'm talking like I'm a senior pastor, which I am not, just to clarify. But you know, if you're used to that kind of frontline platform space, and that's how you read your staff, and that's how you remember who's even on your staff, and that's how you um, feel like you're passing down culture. If you don't challenge yourself to use some other tools in your leadership toolbox, you're going to, by default, make yourself exactly what you were pre-COVID and have missed out on the disruption that God gave us to innovate who the church is and how our leadership can function on a more global scale. What are some other things employers can be doing in the church space and even in the business space to support employees and workers post-COVID? So one of the big things that we're seeing uh, for everyone, kind of regardless of your industry, is uh, sort of this home work-life balance has been really readjusted. And Mm. when you move from an office where you have a commute and some clear boundaries, it's already it was already hard to have good boundaries at home. Uh, But when you now work at home, um, there are some uh, real challenges to that. And I think the longevity of what we've experienced has added into that. So one of the things we're seeing companies do that are really uh, sort of taking the lead on this, and this is particularly helpful for women, is they're actually setting cultural expectations around work-life balance. And so rather mm. than sort of having the ownership be on the person and saying like, hey, if you need to be done on, you know, with email at eight o'clock, you just stop answering at eight o'clock. You know, you have the power to do that. It kind of puts all the responsibility on the individual to sort of hold these boundaries. But we all know when all of your team is working at 10 o'clock at night on something and you're the one person not there, you, you're you you're making a choice to be less effective. So instead, hmm. I think the real innovation is happening. And a lot of this comes thanks to the mental health awareness that our culture is really paying attention to. I think a lot of our leaders are facing mental health challenges like they never have before. And they're having to create their own boundaries. You know, they're seeing therapists and their therapists are talking to them about things, you know, revolutionary things like a Sabbath or having dinner with your family every night, you know, and it's a good night's sleep. This is radically impacting them. Uh, But as they're realizing the difference it's making to them, we really have an opportunity to enculturate that into our companies and organizations and making some hard lines. I've seen a lot of places just be like, we turn off emails at six o'clock or we um, shut down on Saturdays. No one does anything on a Saturday. Um, and and even shutting, uh, you know, giving uh, sabbaticals or breaks or leaves of absences and closing people's emails down so they aren't even tempted to come back to it. Those things where your employer demands of you boundaries is a wonderful gift to give your team. And so if you as a leader feel like mm. those are important practices or you want your leaders to be imposing those things, I would really encourage you to take it a step further and just decide that's what our company or our organization does. Even if you just try it for 90 days and see what kind of feedback you get, see what kind of 
what productivity looks like afterwards. Um, find out if your employees like it. See what you think of it. Uh, just give it a try and see if there might be some ways to support people who are not as strong as you are in holding to those boundaries. I really appreciate that. You know, I used to be the 24-7 boss back in the day that was pre-burnout and obviously got me burned out. And over the years, I've gotten better and better to the point where over the last few years, I'm like, when we onboard new team members, I'm like, look, this is a different world. We generally don't work in the evenings. I mean, if you want to, I'm not going to stop you. Like if you had something come up during the day and you want a time shift, I'm not going to stop you, but you will not be getting emails or Slack from me. And if it ever shows up, there's zero expectation uh, that you would have to respond uh, we generally don't do weekends. I mean, once in a while, once or twice a year, we might have something special and we call it, you know, okay, everybody's on for this day. I can't even think of the last time we did that. But, um, <laughs> you know, we have those expectations kind of, of of carved out. Would you say it has to be more like these are the rules or do you think that's a good step in the right direction? I'm just curious as to what you would advise. I think any step in the right direction is going to be helpful. I think it depends on how thick the culture is for overworking and how much your employees are struggling. So if people are really uh, struggling and if you're having a large turnover and a lot of it is because the demands are too high or I feel like I have to always mm. be on, those are your people telling you that they don't feel like they have the freedom to put boundaries up and still be okay in their job and still be a high performer. So I think that conflict is what you're looking for. It's not so much about the strategy or the rule. It's about responding to the culture you find yourself leading. So I think that's probably the biggest one. And then I think also a trend we see in churches is the church itself taking a Sabbath day where everyone mm. has one day off together. Because in church work, just to interpret this a little bit differently out of the business world, because Monday through Friday is the way the world works, but church works uh, really on a seven-day-a-week ministry space. And so it's so easy to overdo and over-program yeah. where it's really hard for anyone to feel like they're actually have a full break from it. And so a lot of churches have decided, you know, if we have Sunday services only, we'll take all of Saturday, maybe even a Friday and a Saturday, and we shut down the offices. We don't have any ministries. We never do a thing. Most churches choose either Friday or Saturday, by the way. It's hard to do both because when do you do your volunteer night? Um, but if, but even just choosing one day, and then a lot of churches are still in the habit of working their employees six days a week. You know, you work a five day a week and then you come on Sunday to volunteer as your staff role. And I would just say that uh, the demands of ministry tend to be a little bit longer and bigger than a lot of other mm. jobs and um, giving people another day or at least another half day off uh, really can make a difference to their quality of life and their ability to stay on the team long term. We gave Fridays off when I was a lead pastor. It's just like, and we rarely did anything on a Saturday so that you would show up fresh on Sunday. Uh, it's funny because a lot of my current team came in from the church space and they are shocked at how we get so much done in 40-ish hours a week that fit very nicely in what would normally be a Monday to Friday workday. And mm -hmm. a lot of them have extra time. It's like, okay, so I read a book yesterday or I did this or whatever. And it's the, and I don't think we're overstaffed. It's just, it's a different pace of life and probably something that took me a long time to get to in my own life. But it's a whole idea of doing less and accomplishing more. Um, Katie, what's the missing 33% of leadership? 
So the missing 33% is actually a wonderful TED Talk. I would recommend anyone who's interested in this topic to go check out. Uh, It's called The Missing 33%. And it's based off research um, that talks about how when men and women are developed into leadership, uh, men tend to be groomed and mentored to take on sort of the hard sides of their industry. So um, they understand how budgeting works and they get invited to budget meetings. They understand how the sausage is made and they get, you know, invited to the tour, the manufacturing places, or, um, you know, they, they uh, are taken to the conferences where like the big heavy hitters are. And so they're really groomed in the skill sets required to be in that upper level leadership known as the C-suite or the executive suite. Women, on the other hand, as they start to grow in their leadership, their mentors and training tends to focus not on skill sets required for higher levels, but on internal dynamics that she might be thinking about. This is really, I think, a good natured attempt to sort of deal with what we call that sticky floor, which are those mindsets and uh, sort of negative thoughts that many women have that keep their feet stuck to the floor and prevent them Mm. from growing in leadership. Um, But what ends up happening is in that critical stage from mid-level manager to executive, the guys are given really strong skill sets and women are really encouraged in their confidence. And so when they reach those higher level roles, uh, they come very differently equipped. And so that Mm. missing 33% is one of the areas to really look at in your leadership development pipelines to make sure that even though you're trying to develop women, that you're actually giving them the the concrete skills they're going to need to succeed at a higher level. Even if internally they're still wondering what I'm doing here and they've got imposter syndrome and they're, um, and part of it is when women show up to be mentored, they're bringing you their biggest sort of pain point, which is I feel insecure all the time. And so good Mm. mentors talk to them about feeling more secure. But what what we fail to realize as leaders and as developers is that confidence really comes through competence. The more skills we have, the more wins we have, the more we know when we walk into a meeting, the less surprises we have when we try to make a leadership decision, the more confidence we gain. And so when we focus on talking about confidence and leave out the competency part, we're really shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to developing people by about 33%. Hmm. Okay, I know we talked about this. I believe we talked about this in our first interview. I've also talked to Danielle Strickland about it. But for years in ministry, there was something known as the Billy Graham rule, right? And the Billy Graham rule was to avoid affairs and you know moral failure and collapse, men would not necessarily meet with a woman alone. And I followed that for a long time. And now I have a modified version of it, a very modified version of it. I still don't want to end up in a moral place I don't want to be in. Um, But one of the critiques of that rule is it actually denies women opportunity that men have because you don't have the meals, the hangouts, the, oh, let's do a trip together, that kind of thing that you would get often with um, men or, you know, if you had a female workplace where women would go, but then men may not be invited. Do you want to speak into where that sits in your mind as we open up a brand new year and a new era? Um, do you think that should just be thrown out entirely uh, or, or how do we make it more equitable for everybody? Well, I, I'm a beneficiary of the Billy Graham rule, and I'm very grateful that I've been in ministry since I was a teenager and have never had something really inappropriate happen to me. And that is not the case for most women. I think it's two-thirds of women have had some sort of harassment or sexual pressure from Ooh. someone in authority. And so 
that's a pretty significant number. I'm not too quick to say we should just not worry about this. Um, I do think it's one of the things that a virtual workplace eliminates a lot of those pieces. Yeah, pretty much, um, right? Not yeah. that you can't do horrible things over the internet and, you know, with digital formats, but uh, it really does break down a lot of those um more nuanced things that we try to avoid because of the Billy Graham rule. I do agree, though, that we want to be able to do things that are protective but and create safe environments for everyone, uh, but don't limit anybody. And I think the challenge with the Billy Graham rule is it's strictly oriented around men and women meeting together. It doesn't take into account really where our culture is now. So uh, right now, our culture is men are in most leadership roles and women are not. So what we're basically saying is leaders cannot spend any one-on-one time developing women. And so that kind of inherently, we know that's not right. And that's not a good way to help women grow into leadership if they can't get any leader's attention or any coaching or mentoring from them in a very personal way. But the other thing is that uh, men mentoring men and going off one-on-one to a conference and sharing a hotel room really isn't above reproach either anymore. And so the Billy Graham rule doesn't cover those pieces. I think we really need to think about reinventing about how we do leadership development, how we do mentorship, so that we take away this sort of one-on-one is the only way you actually get to grow, or it's the only way trust is built, or it's the only way you can really grow as a leader. And so I always recommend to to especially uh, pastors or leaders who are wanting to be protective of these kinds of things. And actually, I think any smart leader in today's day and age would want to create protection around themselves, not based on the category of the person, but based on the fact that you're a leader and you have power. And when you have power, you cannot have an equal relationship with another person that's in your organization. It's not possible. So one of the things I think it's important for leaders to realize is because you're a leader, you have more power Mm. than anyone you're meeting with. So you're never in an equal relationship. You're always going to have more influence, more authority, more power. And so it level it, you can't think of it as a level relationship. And so when you say something or you invest in something one or you take them somewhere, you're you're using all of that and speaking much louder than anybody else in the organization might. And so when you invite multiple people with you rather than just one person, you not only protect yourself, you also are kind of giving that leadership value and investing in people in a way that's so much louder and so much stronger than what they would experience uh, just one-on-one or on their own. Yeah, you know, I did not understand that uh, for a long time in leadership where I kind of thought, no, you know, I'm not like this really powerful person. I'm just one of the people. And I've, I've come to a realization over the years that that's just not true. When you're the leader, when you are the hirer and the firer and you kind of hold the keys to the budget, like there is just innate power in that. For somebody who might resist what you just said, how can you help them understand that, no, if you're the leader who holds any kind of authority over someone, you have power and it's unequal. Like, it took me so long to figure that out. Well, one of the perfect sort of metaphor relationships is parent and child, right? So Mm. even uh, when you're a parent, you you have authority over your kid. Like when you say, I love you, it means more than the neighbor guy, right? When you say, I'm mad at you, it hurts more than anybody else. And so Mm. when we are parents, if we don't think about that, we don't uh, use our words as wisely, or we may not be as careful of what we're really stewarding. But then as your kids get older, it is easier to kind of be like, well, I got this teenager, your relationship and your role changes, but you're still the parent. And so, Mm. you know, I don't know if you, I live in South Florida, so there's lots of parents who want to be best friends with their 
their teenage kids. Oh, and yeah, you that's just a thing. know that's not right. Like you're watching it go down and the mom's with the girl and they're wearing the same jeans. You're like, this just isn't right. And it's because the parent has like forgotten that they aren't just one of them. They aren't one of the kids. They have a different role. They're still family. They can and should be approachable. They should apologize when they make a mistake. They can be human, but they never give up the authority that God gave them as parents. And that's the same with leaders. It will always be a part, no matter how bad you feel about your own leadership, no matter what mess up you just made, no matter how God has taught you to get over your ego and has humbled you, you still have authority. And so what you say matters. And the way you steward your time is going to speak volumes to the people who are hungry for it. Okay, so you got a brand new book. It's called Finding Your Leadership Voice. Did I get the title right? Yep, you got it. Great book, great book. It can be challenging for any leader. Tell me why you wrote the book, um, because it's designed for women in particular, is it not? It is, which I never thought I would write a book just for women. <laughs> uh, okay. Just like I never thought I would write a book about women. Um, so yeah. So what happened? Here's the story. So I wrote my first book, Developing Female Leaders, because I was a church consultant and I was working to try and help churches build their multi-site strategies and their leadership development pipelines and grow their churches. Uh, and we just kept running into this issue of not enough leaders. It was the consistent issue and they had everything else they needed, but enough leaders. And as we sort of popped the hood and got in there and started looking at who was taking classes, how were they developing people, we just saw women sort of dropping off um, through their leadership pipeline. And so I wanted to help these churches do better. And most of them were, you know, uh, they were from a variety of different theological perspectives. So it's not a book on theology about this. It's really a book on the leadership of the gifts in your community or your organization and how to make sure you're stewarding all of them and maximizing all of them. And so I really wanted to help them sort of, you know, figure this out. And I'm a woman, so I'm like, I probably have some thoughts on this, but I don't know what they are. Uh, and so as I started talking with them about the kinds of things they're doing, and they have a lot of women that they want to see grow into leadership or young women that they want to raise up, um, the things they were doing were not always awesome. And so that book was really my attempt to help guys who meant well and were great godly leaders do a better job living out what they were trying to do. Um, but as I've been working for the last three and a half years with churches on this topic, what I've found our next big hurdle is, is not so much opening doors, although that's still an important thing, making sure women are getting paid well uh, or equally. We're actually seeing a lot of movement, like way more than I ever expected in the last three years around those topics. Where I see the biggest hurdle right now is for women themselves, as they step into these leadership roles, as they walk through these unlocked doors, the experience they're having is far less than satisfying. They're stressed out. They feel um, out of their element. They're struggling with insecurities they've never had before. They're questioning if they should be there. They aren't sure if this is really what they're supposed to be doing. They're Most of them are convinced there's someone else better out there for the job. Um, and so they're just a little bit on the side of miserable, which is not what leadership should feel like. Like it's hard, yeah. it's difficult, but there should be, when you have a gift of leadership or gifts in these areas, and you get to start using them in the kingdom, it should also be satisfying. It should also be rewarding. You should also feel God's smile on you that you are in your spot doing what you're made to do. 
And so as I started doing, you know, I'd go to churches and work with the staff and meet with the senior pastor and work with the executive team. And then I always have like the ladies lunch or the women staff <laughs> leaders, you know, around the meal. Um, and so we would have these great conversations and, and I would talk about, you know, owning your own leadership of your gifts, how to ask for constructive feedback, uh, kind of the things that the research points to. But I would always get these questions about like, how do I uh, not feel so insecure? Or what do I do when I'm the only woman at the table and I can tell they all know something I don't know? Or all of these guys go out to lunch every Thursday and they have for years. And now I'm on the team and I know they like their guyhood and their brotherhood, but I know they're talking about things that I don't get to be a part of, or I need to leave at a certain time, or, you know, just all these questions about how do I, na now that I have it, how do I navigate mm. it that I actually want to stay in it? And to be really honest, I just saw a lot of women dropping out, taking the motion, yeah. stepping back, quitting, uh, and the pandemic has accelerated that. And so I, uh, not everyone gets to afford to coach with me or has the time to do it. And a lot of churches don't sponsor that kind of support. And so I really wanted to take some of my best coaching thoughts and ideas and put them in a book that over 90 days, uh, women could get just a little hit um, on how to reframe their thinking, renew their mind, as Romans 12 talks about. Uh, it takes 21 days to make a habit, but it takes 90 days to reset a mind, a mindset. Mm. And so I just wanted to try and help uh, drip in some of the truth about uh, leadership, about God's calling, about who you are, about the kinds of things you can tolerate and the kinds of things you shouldn't. Uh, a lot of women fall into sort of a passive style of leadership. I try to really advocate for assertive style leaderships. We have a lot of women who are too aggressive, right? And so mm. finding that balance. And the biggest issue I find with coaching women is if they start off too passive uh, because they were enculturated for that, or they start off too aggressive because they're angry and they want to come out kind of swinging. Um, both are really unhealthy and will limit trust building and your leadership potential. Mm. What we want is to grow both of those towards the middle where healthy, godly, assertive leadership is. And most women don't have a picture of what that looks like. Um, and so they overcorrect. Passive women all of a sudden show up and they're showing really aggressive behavior or aggressive women show up and they sit in a meeting and don't say anything the whole time. And the team is kind of like, who is this person we hired? Because yeah. she's showing up so differently than who we thought we hired. And it's just because we haven't found our way or had enough leadership experience or enough language to really be able to figure out what kind of leader am I called to be and how do I show up honoring and having integrity with that every day? Wow. That uh, sounds like a really good prospect. So uh, you've outlined some of the challenges. What are some of the tips that you would encourage leaders to find their leadership voice? I take it some of this can slip across the gender line and help everybody who's trying to find their leadership voice, even though it's targeted at women. Can it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a leadership okay. person. So these are really just basic leadership skills. What I found is that most women have male voices teaching leadership to them. They don't have mm. a lot of female voices. And, uh, and because especially for women who are growing into leadership, I wanted to share a lot more of my own personal stories and some of the lessons that I've faced. And because I've sat mostly in rooms full of men where I'm the only woman, uh, or at least one of only a couple that does change the dynamics. And there are so many women who are making headway in churches, but that is a unique piece that um, those leadership principles take on a different color when that's the mm -hmm. environment that you're leading in. So I wanted to be able to address that head on. 
So some of the things, like I mentioned, really trying to find that assertive leadership voice. Uh, there's an old joke. Well, I don't know if it's old to the guys, but it is to the women. It's like the difference between an assertive uh, assertive leadership and aggressive leadership is only your gender. <laughs> and so trying to help women go just because you're being assertive does not mean you're overstepping. And especially if you're in a conservative environment, that is like the cardinal sin for a woman is to overstep her leadership boundary. And so really trying to articulate and knowing for yourself, what does assertiveness look like um, and how will your leaders react to that and moving yourself towards that um, without overcorrecting. Another one is to really know your personal leadership values. This is something we take a lot of leaders through in cohorts and in developmental milestones. A lot of women have not had the opportunity to really define for themselves, what are my leadership values? How do I show up and what is important to me? Just because you're part of a church with five really catchy or rhymy values doesn't mean all five of those are yours. I know you're all in, but you don't have to absorb the other people around you. You have your own leadership voice. And knowing that really influences the kind of jobs you take, the way you organize your leadership, the things you speak up against or for, and the things you stay quiet on, because God has a tapestry developed in you and all of those different colors and all of those different shapes really matter. You have to know yourself to be able to do it. Um, But it's not self-reflective as much as it is really acknowledging God's hand in your life and knowing how he's called you and prepared you for this role. So those are just a couple of them, but in 90 days, we cover a lot of ground. I'll bet you do. Um, so there are definitely some styles of leadership generally that are on their way out. The kind of command and control, large and in charge, I speak, you sit and take notes. That leadership style is dying out and been proven largely ineffective in the culture. Are there other styles of leadership that you think should be abolished? Well, I don't know if abolish is the right word because I I believe strongly in situational leadership. And so even command and control leaders, I was a nurse. When you're in the ER, you want a command and control person to tell everyone what to do. We all know our role. We all know our place. We know what we have authority to do and not to do. That's the way the team functions. So there are times when you need that kind of leadership, but there are more times when we need more collaborative or coaching style leaders that tends to give us more growth and momentum over time. I think the key to it is having discernment as a leader and enough tools in your leadership toolbox that you can pull out what's needed at the moment. And that is the piece that I think in sort of our kind of historical leadership teachings, we really have fallen into the trap of making it a personality-driven or even in the church world, especially a gift-driven style of leadership. And so uh, that's really what's getting us into trouble in the diversity conversation, is that not only are we missing diversity of gender, of race, of age, of socioeconomic level, but most of our leadership teams are missing diversity of giftedness. And that is one of the Mm. reasons why we're having a hard time with diversity of other uh, factors is because we're not used to being with people who are not exactly like us uh, in gifting, in mentality, and we sort of couch it under culture or DNA. They get it. We click. We have chemistry. We don't even have to describe things. Well, if you don't have to describe things to your team and they can read your mind, chances are you're missing perspective and you're missing the dissenting opinion Mm. and you're missing the person who's got a gift that really is necessary in this conversation uh, because that collaboration uh, is the key, I think, the key to leadership of the future. And part of that is because we all take turns leading in the different needs of the moment. Um, Mm. That's the way you don't have to have all the tools in just your toolbox. You get to have the tools of everyone on your leadership team. 
Well, and that kind of takes me to my final or near final question, which is uh, thinking about the future. Are there emerging styles of leadership? And I want you to think generational. You know, you're a mm-hmm. parent, so you're watching, you know, a whole new generation grow up in your house. Uh, but you also work with a lot of young leaders. Do they expect different styles of leadership or are different styles of leadership more effective, uh, you think, in the future than perhaps in the past? And if so, what would they be? Absolutely. Well, I've mentioned collaboration a few times, but that is definitely mm-hmm. uh, the style that I think uh, for today and in the ne- near future is probably the most accessible to everyone. It yeah. addresses a lot of the limitations that we're feeling in our leadership uh, practices right now. Uh, and it is a an expectation of, I think, Generation Z and definitely will be of Generation Alpha. I'm watching my son who just turned 18. He has no qualms, you know, texting or um, you know, tweeting or sending a message to someone incredibly famous. And he's like, there's a good chance they'll reply to me. He he doesn't look at barriers or hierarchy in the same way that I do. I try to imagine, you know, I, I, I've worked in organizations where I can't even imagine accessing the president or the chief. Right. And right. he's just like, I'll just, I'll just send him a little tweet. Maybe they'll pick up on that or I'll, you know, tag him in this thing. And chances are they'll respond. Like I, I tag you in some things sometimes and you respond. I'm like, look, Carrie Newhoff responded to me. He's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, mom, big diff. You know him. I'm like, I, I know, but it's a big deal. You know, it's so just that expectation of accessibility. And so when we approach our leadership as collaborators, that we can get information and insight from everyone in the organization, from our mm-hmm. congregation, that it's not just me and my three best friends that we've figured it all out or the people that I've read their latest book, but it's actually the collaboration from a spiritual perspective. It's really that communal discernment that God gives us in the New Testament church, that everyone's gifts and everyone's abilities come together. I think the more we lean into collaboration, the more we're going to see uh, growth and connection and accessibility and better leadership decisions for the people we serve. Maybe not for our staff, maybe not for ourselves, but we will serve the people we're called to much better. And the other is a coaching style leadership. And Mm. I hear this kind of come in and out of topics um, through the 30 years I've been studying leadership. Uh, But really, for me, it's about a culture of coaching. And so I liken it to sort of pro football versus uh, college football, at least here in the United States. So pro football has a very like, we're here to win, and we will hire and pay the best salaries to the people who will help us win. And if we get through and we win, you know, we could actually cancel your contract because now we think you're too old. And now we're getting the next team that will win for next year. That's a very different culture. A lot of organizations kind of fall in that culture when they're very goal-driven. A coaching-style culture, though more like a college football team where we recruit people, we provide scholarships, we build a place where you come in as a freshman and you make your way into higher levels of role based on your talent, based on the, the value you bring to the team, based on your responsiveness to coaching. And our whole job is to actually graduate you. If you're in college football for 10 years, the coaches have failed, right? And so whether you graduate <laughs> yeah. to another team in the organization or you graduate to another organization, my job as a leader is to actually collaborate in a way where we're using work to develop people. We're not using people to develop our work. 
And that mm. sort of people-mindedness, again, I think these upcoming generations are just simply not going to tolerate it. We're already seeing it in the Great Resignation where they're like, if I can't have some flexibility or you're not going to allow me to grow in my position or you're not going to give me assignments where I'm doing great work and becoming a better whatever, even better person, then it's really, I have no ROI in that. I'm looking for the greatest return on my investment at your company. And again, it's not always about pay. In fact, I would think... Mm -hmm. These generations aren't motivated by that. They're motivated for the experience of being fully who they are. And man, as a leader, especially as a person of faith, that is such something to harness. Man, such a difference from the 80s that I grew up in, where it was all about Wall Street and big bucks and lifestyles of the rich and famous. Like These are the people who really are going to impact the world if we take our leadership and adjust it in a way where our priorities become them and the work becomes the overflow versus the opposite of that. Katie, it's been so refreshing to have this conversation. Tell us where we can find you online and uh, a little bit more about the book. Thank you so much. Well, I am available online. The website is the best place to get connected with me. Katie Cole, that's spelled K-A-D-I-C-O-L-E.com. And I'm on social media at Katie Cole. If you want more information about the book, you can follow the links there or it's at findyourleadershipvoice.me. Oh, awesome. Katie, Thanks again. I always enjoy our conversations. It's been good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much, Carrie. The honor is mine. Well, that was helpful as always with Katie. And I hope it made you think. I hope it made you realize there's so much nuance to the conversation. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring you nuanced conversations because, yeah, you got people on every side of an issue who are very extreme. Those are single digits of the population. They take up an awful lot of bandwidth in the media and on social media and online today. Uh, But I think most of us want to have nuanced, thoughtful conversations that really support each other. And uh, that's what I think Katie brings to the conversation time and again. If you want more, including all the links to everything we talked about, simply go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 461, and you'll get show notes, including transcripts there. Want to thank our partners, MetaShare. They have a 98% customer satisfaction rating, and the average member saves 50% or more. Find out how much you could save on healthcare by going to metashare.com slash carry. That's metashare, M-E-D-I-S-H-A-R-E.com slash carry. And World Vision is in your corner. They have a free leadership assessment guide with some practical help. You can download it for free today at worldvision.org slash carry podcast, worldvision.org slash C-A-R-E-Y podcast. Next episode, Jordan Rayner is up. Jordan's been on before. Uh, He's a serial entrepreneur, father of three young kids. And we talk about, well, one of my favorite subjects, how to manage your time better. And he has got a brand new book with some really fascinating insights in it. Here's an excerpt. I would say I've been CEO of tech startups where the mandate was to grow 50% a quarter. And the way I got that job done was not responding to my emails constantly. It was making time to do the deep work necessary to serve my customers, my team, my investors really, really well. That's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, just finished a great conversation with Mark Batterson. We have Craig Grishel and Bobby Grunwald scheduled. They're going to talk about hybrid church next year. Got Mark Sayers, Donald Miller, Jenny Allen, and so many more. I'm very excited for this. If you like this episode, I would encourage you to head on over to my website. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com. I do some writing there every week. The content gets accessed, well, over 600,000 times a month. And we send out a daily email to over 85,000 leaders, and we just send them a little daily nugget 
of leadership advice. And uh, we hear good things about that all the time from leaders that we're trying to get in the corner of. And if you're a podcast listener who rarely heads on over to the written side of things, I'd encourage you to do that today. Go to kerryneuhoff.com. Most of what we do over there is free. We also have some premium courses that we've been able to help thousands of leaders with. So if you're looking for how to communicate better or you're looking for how to lead a better team in the midst of all of this, we got that for you. I've got a course called Lead a Better Team plus a bunch of other stuff. So head on over to kerryneuhoff.com. Again, the upside of having a name like mine is even if you misspell it horribly, uh, Google will help you find it. So thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate you. And uh, yeah, we'll bring you a few more episodes from the California studio. See if you can hear the difference. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.